What is up, podcast listeners? Thank you for giving me a few moments of your day to listen to this podcast. This is the Matt Baxter Show. I'm your host, Matt Baxter, and this podcast is about purpose, passion, and calling. Super stoked to have you as a listener because we're going to dive into some awesome, intense stories about people who are going through this journey of this thing called life, and we're all just figuring this out together. But seriously, you're giving me a little bit of your time, and I want to make sure it's valuable and worthwhile. So have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was getting this podcast off the ground, we first started as the Wedgecast, evolved into the Matt Baxter Show. There was a lot of questions that we had, like, how do I record an episode? How do I get my show in all the different places like Spotify, Apple Music, Anchor, Zencaster, all these different places. And yet it just seemed very, very complicated. But the simple thing for us as we began to navigate the waters is the answer to every single one of these questions, questions excuse me, was really simple. It's Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free. Yeah, free. And it's ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise in your podcast. That means you can get paid podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, making money. Okay, it's sweet. It's easy. It's not a big cheap plug on an ad, but it's just simple and easy to use. So for us, it's one of the best parts about it is we can do it entirely remote or in studio. So you can record, you've got that really, really high, you know, high in the sky person that you're going to have as a guest on your podcast. You got to do it remote. Anchor is easy to use. You got people who are willing to come to your studio, your house, your office, wherever you're recording it. Boom. Anchor. Love it. Simple, easy, simple and easy to use. So if you ever want to start a podcast, make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start. Join me in the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. Can't wait to hear your podcast. We are back in action. Episode 51 is a unique one. It is with Ryan Millsap. Ryan Millsap is the owner of Black Hall Studios, which is, I believe, the largest film studio in uh, Atlanta, but also one of the largest in, uh, in Georgia. They're just absolutely killing it. If you've ever seen a movie, you've probably seen a movie filmed at his studio. He's a real estate guy. He's an Oxford philosopher. I mean, just just really, really out there, but it's so fun. And actually, him and I uh, go way back. He knew me while I was in diapers, and we reconnected you know, 20 years later and have become friends ever since. We might even be working on a couple real estate deals together. So this episode is one with a friend, one with just an imaginary thinker, and one with somebody who I believe is a perfect guest to talk about purpose, passion, calling. Thanks for being a guest, Ryan. Ryan, thank you for being a guest on the Wedgecast. Glad to do it. Thanks for having me. So I got to give a little bit of a backstory for uh, for the, those listening. So Ryan, we hung out what for the first time in it was like late December, mid December, something like that. Uh, you know, about six months to a year ago, right? Correct. So before that, the last time I saw you, I think we were jumping on a trampoline as you as a babysitter for me. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. That might actually have been my little brother. Because you have to remember that I would I I left the house before my parents moved to Michigan. Oh, good so, point. So it actually probably wasn't so you. <laughs> if 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 I if if we were jumping on the trampoline, it was only because I was home from college. 
that was probably it. <laughs> and I awesome. promise you, when I was home from college, I wasn't babysitting trying to make money. <laughs> Definitely not babysitting me. I, I was probably I was probably a big headache. <laughs> my guess would be my mom was babysitting you, and I was just like, you know, I love kids, so I love the playfulness of kids, and I love just the way they get after life. So any chance I had to jump on a trampoline with a five-year-old, I'm in. That love that love that. Well, so the, the, the backstory to all this is uh, my mom and Ryan's mother were like best friends growing up. And occasionally I would go over and hang out at the, the Millsap farm and hang out with them. And, and, and Ryan was always, you know, well, occasionally around for uh, when you were back from college and stuff like that. And we actually happened to reconnect, you know, 20 years later and get the chance to have an awesome time in Atlanta. Got a chance to see his studio, see his, see his places and stuff like that. And I'll let you dive in a little bit further, but it was just phenomenal to have friends. I mean, literally that weekend, I was like, I, I think you said this, but it's like, I feel like we, we, we became close friends after that. So it's been a blast. So I'm All glad right. to have you on the show. Yeah, I'm glad to do it. And that was a, that was a really fun connection because obviously I had no idea what kind of a man you grew up to be. <laughs> Last well, hopefully right there. Little, right? I mean, last time I saw you, you were a little kid. And so, you you know, when, you, when you're dealing with longtime family friends that you haven't seen for a long time, then it's just a crapshoot. <laughs> you really have no idea how you're going to connect or what it's going to be like. And, I mean, we obviously were like old friends immediately. It was great. It was great. So, Ryan, give the give the background of your story, man. You you've got some amazing things going on, but would love for, would love for the audience just to hear hear kind of what leads up to today and what you got going on. Well, I mean, every one of us has a psychological story arc. Whether we realize it or not, we're being driven by core issues that we have that I don't know how many of them are things we're born with and how many of them are things we inherit uh, from childhood and genetics uh, and how many things are born from circumstances and trauma and all the kinds of struggles each of us have in our youth, various, you know, various kinds and various degrees. But somehow we all end up with core issues that we spend our whole lives trying to figure out. And my core issue, for whatever reason, is freedom. I just want to be free. I don't want to be told what to do. I don't want to be uh, confined. I don't want to be told that there are things I can't do. I don't want to have limitations on the things I'm allowed to think about. I don't want to have limitations on things that I'm allowed to explore. I want to seek understanding, and I want to know what it means to make choices out of my own free will. And so that's really the backdrop of everything that has driven me in my career. And at what stage career, at what stage of life. life did you did you first figure out that like at what stage of life did you did you circle freedom as like that's your core thing to sort out? It was when I was in college, you know, when when I was in college, I came into college as a bioengineering major. And within the first, I don't know, I guess it was probably the middle of my freshman year, I said, you know, I don't think I really care about bioengineering. I think I have a lot of questions about what life means and what, what, what it means to be a human being and trying to my, – my, my interest is in trying to understand the fabric of the universe and not necessarily from a physics perspective, 
but more from a theoretical, philosophical, and sometimes theological perspective. Um, and so when I was in when I was in college, I I spent the last three years of my college life just deep in philosophical studies that, you know, of course, when you study philosophy, you can't help but study theology. And when you study theology, you can't help but study history. When you study history, you can't help but study sociology. And when you study sociology, you can't help but study psychology. And all these things just wrap around together in a search for what it means to be a human being. And in those searches, there's a lot of, you know, deep questions about how much freedom we have, how much freedom has been infused into the universe, how much do our choices affect the course of history, and how much is history just handed to us, and these kind of questions. And as I was exploring all of that, I found myself deeply troubled by the idea that the universe was somehow determined and that we as human beings actually didn't have a lot of effect one way or the other on the outcomes of history because we were so pre-programmed and uh, in many ways predetermined that we, that, that we just weren't having substantial effect. So that and had that to have been like a big grandiose, that had to be like a big grandiose, like you feeling confined. So you're, you know, if, if the universe is telling us that uh, it's already written, it is how it is, no matter what you do, uh, that's Ryan Millsap for the first time being like, I don't really have any say in what, what goes on here. And I could see how I don't think you'd like that. <laughs> no, it's exactly right. And so I said, I said, you know, as with many philosophical things, we don't know what's actually true from a purely rational perspective. There's just no way to prove things, right? There's no way to prove if there is a God or if there's not a God. And therefore, there's no way to prove if life has meaning or if life doesn't have meaning. But emotionally, we respond to those two ideas in very different ways. And I, for one, find the notion that there is no God and that, that, that there is therefore no ultimate meaning of human life. I find that emotionally to be reprehensible. I find that emotionally to be full of sadness. I find that emotionally to be um, anger-inducing. I find it I – could, I could keep going on. I find it to be something that would create depression. And so all of those feelings, right, the feelings, the things that well up inside of the center of our bodies, that section of our bodies from our necks to our kneecaps, that, in my opinion, is where the best philosophy is done because when I have feelings – that make me feel terrible, I believe that is guidance that I'm on the wrong path. So when I encounter an idea like human life is meaningless, then I say, God, that makes me feel terrible. I refuse to believe that because I don't believe I was built to feel terrible. I believe I was built to know happiness and joy, love, excitement, delight, and so I say, I'm going to choose to believe ideas that bring me joy. I'm going to choose to believe ideas that make the section of my body from my neck to my kneecaps delighted. And so 
that's when, you know, on, on some level, I was deeply aware of how much I valued life having meaning and human life and human choices actually mattering. Because I want to believe that I wake up in the morning and the choices I make actually affect the course of history in whatever small way, right? I mean, Winston Churchill's decisions affected history in a much larger way than my decisions. But my decisions are still affecting history and they still matter. That gives me hope. Uh, that gives me excitement. Uh, that gives me a deep sense of personal responsibility um, and the delightful feelings that go along with feeling empowered. Do you think, do you so think it, I'd say college? Yeah. College is when I re just realized it. Yeah. Do you think, uh, that whole concept of feeling empowered, do you think it took you to be at a stage where you had a voice to be sort of what the public considers, uh, empowered, or do you think it was something personal that that was the first time you found yourself feeling empowered and you decided to look at it that way? I mean, your, your comment on Winston Churchill, his, um, his decisions obviously had lasting impact, but so do yours. But what, at what point did you first realize, yeah, my decisions do matter, good, bad, or indifferent? I, well, I think, again, I think a lot of this is tied to all of the work I was doing in college around um, meaning outside of myself, meaning inside of myself, and my impact on the, on the world or on the earth or on the universe or on the collective consciousness or whatever just like what is my small role and how does that all work um it's not you know you, you, it's hard to put yourself in context but that's the beauty of emotion is that emotion if emotion is guiding us like and again i'm not using emotion in in some of the ways that people use it in a disparaging way to like say well that's just emotional or those are just feelings. <clears throat> I'm using them in a deep, connected sense where I say the feelings that I have, the emotions that are born inside of, of my body are like a compass and can guide me. And as you start to awaken to that, then you've just, you, you, you also awaken to a true path toward happiness. And in knowing that true path toward happiness, then – the difficulty or the blessing, you know, it's sometimes both, is that when you know the path, then it's really hard to take a different path. And so I think a lot of entrepreneurs have a really deep sense of what it is that they desire and what it is they believe is their happiness. And frankly, the reason why so, so many of them are so happy is that it, when we're on a path toward happiness, the path itself is joy because we're moving towards something that feels like it's worth getting to. And when you're moving towards something with, with all of your might, all of your, you're bringing all of your soul to bear on a journey that feels worth it, that's joy itself. You know, that, that's what people mean when they say, well, the joy is in the journey. I'm like, well... The joy is only in the journey if you actually like the destination where you think you're going to end up, right? Because that's making it worth it. You fight the monsters in order to get to the uh, the damsel in distress. 
Right. And, be, and beating beating the first monster has got to give you a little bit of joy, right? Even if you don't get to the damsel in distress, <laughs> you at least beat a monster. Well, of, well, <laughs> well, of, well, right. And and you don't know. You don't know if you're going to beat the monster. Yeah. You don't know if the monster's going to eat you or if you're going to slay the monster. <laughs> and by the time you know, it's over. But the joy of fighting the monster for a good reason is 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 really what makes it all worth it. But if you're just fighting the monster to fight the monster, then it's not. There's not a lot of joy in it. it doesn't feel. You don't feel that same level of uh, just soulful delight. Love that. So you went. Remind me. You went to. It, it was Biola, right in L.A. Yeah, I went to Biola in L.A. Small liberal arts school. Yeah, and kind then of a sister school to Wheaton, if you know Wheaton in, in Illinois. Yeah, sure. Well, I went to Hope, which is even like almost identical. Well, very similar comparison to Wheaton as well, too. But so yeah, there you go. Well, Hope and Biola are probably a lot alike. Yeah. Oh, I I think we talked about this, but I spent like two weeks on Biola's campus for um, it was called Praxis Academy. It was like an entrepreneur faith connection thing, which is pretty cool. But um, yeah, very cool. So what was the what was so you did Biola and then you did was Oxford for graduate or Oxford was that for graduate school or was that for undergrad? No, it was undergrad. I actually had to drop out of Biola because Biola didn't have any affiliation with Oxford at that time. Now it actually has a really good affiliation with Oxford and sends kids to Oxford. But uh, at the time, um, I dropped out of Biola and went through a program. I can't remember what the which college had this connection, but it was like a visiting scholars program, and I went for a year. But they basically integrated me into Keeble College at Oxford. But then because I was an athlete, then I got really integrated because I was a first dates rower at Keeble. And so it was me and seven British guys. So I just got, you know, kind of adopted in really quickly. So Oxford for me um, was absolute magic. The city itself and the essence of the city and the, 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 the essence of that university are so deeply tied to the search for understanding in a really beautiful way, like the, in the rarest of air kind of way, where people are genuinely searching to understand what it means to exist and how the world actually works. And, and there's a lot of very honest, straightforward dialogue that you don't find in a lot of places in society because in a lot of places of society, many questions are not allowed to be asked it, it, for one, one reason or another. It might be religious limitation. It might be social limitation. It might be political, right? But there's all these reasons why questions you know, can or cannot be asked. And Oxford is a place where uh, I experienced it to be a place where there just weren't there weren't questions like that. Everything could be asked, and and you were dealing with a segment of the population that had the intellectual and emotional capacity to ask any question and not be scared by those questions, or not be offended by the questions, or uh, just generally not be able to sit in the questions, but instead be able to take the questions in, analyze, think about, feel what they might mean, and then come up with. Um, you know, the next set of questions. And so it really felt like my soul's home. Uh, I loved Oxford. From the moment I set foot, I just felt the spirit was a spirit I deeply related to. And then I went on, you know, while I was there. I learned more in one year 
at Oxford and just the way that the education was oriented. I learned more in one year at Oxford than I learned in all the rest of my education combined. And there's not a day that goes by that I don't use knowledge, knowledge both emotional and intellectual, that I learned at Oxford to help me, um, you know, continue on the journey that I'm on. Was there was there a, well. was there a, oh, didn't mean to cut you off. Um, yeah. Was there yeah. a uh, question that you was there one big overarching question that you got answered at Oxford during that time period? One big overarching question. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this is going to get really esoteric for a minute, but yeah, let's, get, let's, let's, uh, let's hit it. We shouldn't be recording this so, in the morning. It should be over a scotch and a, and a cigar. <laughs> <laughs> well, then it would be a six hour podcast. So yeah, we'll do that volume two. We'll do that volume two. Yeah. Volume two. Um, you know, my specialty in philosophy was time, eternity, and divine omniscience. And so the questions that I was exploring at the greatest depth had to do with how time functions philosophically, a little bit on the physics side, but it's, it's a totally different kind of time when you're talking about philosophical time versus the time that is physics time, you know, the time that that, that um, guys who are rocket scientists are using to try to uh, get physical objects to the moon. Time is part of their equations, but it's a different notion of time than time uh, in philosophy, because time in philosophy is very purely linear, right? Something was past, something is future, um, and you're trying to understand how that all fits together. And then, of course, eternity is um, the notion of what's existed forever and or what would exist forever. And those are two different things in the sense that you have things that have always existed, possibly, and then you have things that will always will exist from this point forward. And trying to understand what those things might be is you know, questions of eternity. And then, of course, divine omniscience is what does God know? And what does God know has a huge uh, implication on the rest of time because if God knows the future well then the future actually exists and if the future actually exists then it just is and it cannot be changed so the 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 the, the, the very the, the quick implication is that in order for the future to be something that humans can change genuinely, then the future is something that cannot exist. And if it does exist, then it's unchangeable, and therefore humans have no freedom. So in order for humans to actually have freedom, then God can't know the future. But if God doesn't know the future then it makes people very uncomfortable because suddenly God might not know something. And so that has all sorts of sociological implications inside of theological circles that make people squirm. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to understand how it could be that God doesn't know the future because that's essential to humans actually having true freedom. And for that to not somehow diminish God 
And that's a completely different conversation that I think is beautiful and amazing and worth it, but it may not be appropriate for this podcast. But, <laughs> or um, or just but, schedule, schedules might not allow it this morning to carry out. At some point, yeah, we're going to some point. At some point, we're going to go there. Maybe not right now. (laughs) But trust me when I tell you that God not knowing the future is one of the most beautiful ideas in the entire universe. So we can talk about that some other time. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Good. Cool. So so I got to get really dumb and practical when you're thinking all this high intellect conversation. So when you're having these sort of, uh, we'll call them discovering questioning sessions, physically where are you and what are you doing so let me be completely honest when i occasionally go there it's either taking a shower or taking a dump and i don't have my phone on me and that's like when i have like that's when i have these like all right yeah my 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 my, uh i'm not thinking about what i have to do today but i'm thinking deeper whatever whatever moments and occasionally in airports when i see a lot of people but where is it for Mm -hmm. you physically like especially when you're at oxford but also now where like what were you doing was this a conversation was this reading was this sitting contemplating staring at a cup of coffee i mean what was this well it's all these things right I, you know when if you if you have philosophy woven into the key fabric of your soul which i don't believe everyone does i mean you know, everybody has different talents and um philosophical interest is not for everybody that's been shown to me over and over and over in my life but for me it's been woven into the fabric of my soul since i was very young and before i had any idea that it was philosophy that i was asking you know the philosophical questions that i wanted to explore um you know i've just always been um very intrigued with existence deeply aware of death I mean, literally, there's not a day that goes by in my life that I don't contemplate my own death, what death actually means, um, how it all, how all that works together. And and I've been that way since the youngest of years. I mean, I, I remember being a young child thinking about the meaning of life and and thinking about my own uh, demise, which not in a like weird way, like these are not. Um, these are not fearful thoughts. These are not um, suicidal thoughts. These are just awareness thoughts, just the, the awareness that we are here for just a breath and then we go somewhere else or we cease to exist. And, and those are, you know, those are very real realities. Either we go somewhere else or we cease to exist. And trying to understand what that means is, is only really interesting to somebody who's thinking about it without even thinking all the time. So for me, where do I go to think about philosophy? I just wake up in the morning and it's, it's always running inside of me. So even when I'm dealing with all of the things that I deal with in my business life, you know how like in the, in, when it used to, well, it's still the case. Let's say that we were scientists and we were trying to run DNA uh, configurations. Well, normally we'd enter all that stuff in a computer, and then we might disappear for a while because that computer just needs to run. So whatever the scientists are doing in the meantime, the computer's just running, crunching numbers and doing all that stuff. That's kind of like philosophy for my soul. Like there's no time in which my soul is not processing philosophically in the background of whatever else I'm doing. Now, I've done lots of different things to enhance that. So 
when I was studying in Oxford, I spent tons of time in the library just reading. I mean, I would spend five to eight hours a day reading. That was just normal. Get up in the morning at five, go, you know, we'd be, have a, we'd have rowing practice and I'd come back and just start the day. And I just love to read and explore. And so whether I was reading or writing papers on the things that I'd read, it was all contemplative. And then, you know, I also have historically been very spiritual in my exploration. So I was always going to incorporate uh, contemplative prayer, uh, what a lot of people think of as meditation, and which is a, med- a form of meditation. Uh, but it's, you know, extended silence and breathing exercises, focus on different ideas or concepts, uh, sometimes uh, petitionary prayer, where you're, you know, you're genuinely asking the universe to be responsive to um, your needs, uh, to your growth, um, to just, just being responsive to you as a person. And I think, um, I think there's a lot of power in engaging the universe in that way, no different than there is power in engaging each other in that way. When you call me and say, hey, would you be willing to do a podcast? Well, then here we are. We're going to have an hour where we can just engage together and sit together. And in doing that, we get to know each other better, and we are deep, more deeply connected. And I think the universe is not dissimilar. So when we go to the universe and say, hey, pay attention to me, I think the universe actually responds to that. And, it, and I don't know why, but I don't know why human beings are the same. We love to have people call out to us. We love to have people ask us for our opinion. We love to have people ask us to tell our story and feel known. And I think the universe interacts in the very same way. So, um, so I could be all kinds of places in my room reading, in my dorm, or in my uh, in the library reading. I could be out on walks, but then in just everyday life, philosophy just follows me um, in a way that is. Uh, you know, autonomous. I mean, it's, it's, this is not something I choose. It just is. Just is. That's great. So let's, uh, let's transition a little bit to business. So where did that all, I mean, I know, obviously I know a, a good chunk of the story, but I'd love to just, where did the, where did the start for this concept of being an entrepreneur and judging by your answer of, uh, you know, philosophy, I would imagine that you've been an entrepreneur since, since day one, but where did that actually start to, where, where did that, where did that become? Well, when you graduate from college, or, or I should say, when you graduate from Biola with a degree in philosophy, which my degree is actually like philosophy and literature, and I think they call it humanities, but philosophy and literature, which is um, pretty esoteric for the rest of society. Like, why would you study such things? It doesn't lead to ease at getting jobs. And so I had to then figure out, like, what I was going to do with my life. And um, I, you know, I had the early years after college were sad for me. Like, there was a lot of, like, heaviness and what I would even think of in retrospect is depression Um, in the sense that I was just like depressed by the way society asked most people to live. 
Now, I didn't understand at the time that most people are okay with it. Most people feel good in society. Most people feel fine having jobs. Most people are totally content to execute somebody else's plan. Um, I'm just not wired that way. And so it was a, you know, it came as a deep emotional shock to go from a world of philosophy where I woke up in the morning and I studied whatever I wanted and tried to search for the meaning of life uh, to a world where I woke up in the morning and had to figure out how I was going to, you know, make a living. And um, so, you know, when I first got out of college, I taught, I was a high school teacher. I taught high school English for two years, mostly because I could get that job really easily. And it was like just a transition. At the time, my professors that I was closest to in college all wanted me to be, go be, be a professor. They thought I was naturally inclined and had the right um, skills and that they, you know, they said, yeah, you were going to be a great professor. And I said, I don't know if I want to be a professor. I mean, look at your guy's life. Like, number one, you spend years trying to get tenure, which is like just in many ways kowtowing to other people's ideas. And then once you have tenure, you still don't really make any money unless somehow you can like write books or who knows what. But without money in our society, there's no freedom. And I'm just unwilling to be on a path where I just accept that I'll never be free. And, and not just free, like philosophically free or spiritually free, but I'm talking practically waking up in the morning and being able to say, there's nothing I can't say yes to today, and there's nothing that I can't say no to today. That's the measure that I use of true freedom. And so I'm not there, but pursuing it brings me joy. I, I long for a day when I can wake up in the morning and there's nothing to which I can't say yes, and there's nothing to which I can't say no. And that then all of that moral responsibility just lays on my shoulders, and I have to find out the truth of who I am. So uh, after I was a teacher, which I hated, um, I mean, I hated, I hated it mostly because it's a dead-end job from a, for somebody that is longing for freedom. It's not a dead-end job for somebody who's longing to help the youth. They might find joy in it every day. But for somebody who's longing for freedom, it's a dead-end job. And so then I had to go and search for, like, you know, jobs where I could make more money. And um, I'm going to save you some of the details, but ultimately I ended up in a finance job. I learned a lot about Wall Street. I learned a lot about investments. I learned a lot about who has money, who doesn't have money, how do they get it. And I decided that all of the money, all of the real money, was in the hands of entrepreneurs and real estate guys. And those guys were kind of the same thing. So when I say real estate guys, what I, what I, I expand that to really mean just guys who deal in uh, investments and guys who create things from scratch. So entrepreneurs and investment guys. So investment guys could be private equity, hedge funds, real estate. You could run a, a bond shop. I mean, there, there's all sorts of ways that you can scale in, in finance and investments. And there's all sorts of ways that you can scale businesses. But really, those are the only two ways to really get rich, which is you have to either leverage other people's time or leverage other people's money. And if you can figure out a way to do either of those or both, then you are on a path where you might end up rich. So my original entrepreneurial endeavor was a concrete recycling plant, which I had met some guys who ran a concrete recycling plant 
on a nonprofit board that I was on and I heard a lot about their business and it seemed amazing. It was amazing. You know, they get paid to take raw material from uh, people that need to dump concrete and asphalt. And then they crush that up and then they get paid again to sell it as a usable end product, which is generally quarter inch aggregate base that sits underneath buildings or roads. And there's a lot of this stuff in the universe. I mean, when you start being uh, aware of the amount of concrete and asphalt, you just you realize it's just such an integral part of a human society that it's probably not going away anytime soon. So I, you know, I, I cut a deal with these guys. I said, listen, your business seems amazing. How about if I go and well, first I said to them, I said, why haven't you ever started another one of these? They had one operation. And they said, well, we make $250,000 a month on a four-acre piece of property, and our lives are pretty amazing. I said, all right, that's fair, but you could do another one. And they were like, yeah, we could. We just never have done it. I said, well, how about this? I'll do another one, and I'll pay you a royalty for all the knowledge, and I'll go raise the money, and I'll run the next operation, and then you know, we'll be off to the races. And I think they said yes. I was 26 years old. I think they said yes, like thinking like it was like never going to happen. And I went out and I found this piece of property. It took me months to find. I found this piece of property. I tied it up. Uh, I got it entitled for concrete recycling. But along the way, I couldn't raise the money I needed to start this business. And I only needed to raise like $3.5 million, which today for a business like that, I could raise pretty rapidly. I mean, maybe in days. But at the time, I would go to rich guys that I knew, and I'd tell them the story of this business and say, God, this sounds like a really amazing business. I said, it is. And they'd say, who's going to run it? And I'd say, I'm going to run it. they say, what do you know about concrete recycling? i say, I might be one of the top five experts in the state of California, which was probably true because very few people knew anything about this business. And very few people that were intellectually inclined knew anything about the business. So – who knows what number I was on the list, but it was pretty high in the state of California at the time. And they'd say, no, 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 no. Not what do you know theoretically. Have you ever run one of these? And I'd say, it's crushing rocks. This is not hard. Like, I'm going to run this one, and I'm going to consolidate the industry. I mean, I've met these people that run all this stuff. Like, they're perfectly fine and lovely people, but they don't move at the same speed I do, and they – don't have the same um, desires, ambitions. I'm just motivated in a different way and have different capacities. I mean, I, I think I've got a big future in concrete recycling. And they said, well, listen, if you get one of these done, I mean, this is kind of like generalization of what people would say. They'd say, if you get one of these done, we'll give you all the money you need to expand. I said, listen, if I get one of these done, I'm never going to ask you for a dollar. And I'll figure out how to grow from there. And they said, ah, we just can't do it. You just aren't ready for this. And they might have been right, or they might have been wrong. I don't know. But I had a piece of land that was entitled, and I was running out of time because I only had a certain amount of time to close this deal. And so then instead of um, starting the operation, I went back to the guys who I would learned about this business from, and I said, listen, I have this piece of land. It's entitled. It's ready to go. I couldn't raise all this money. Why don't I just sell this to you, and you guys do another one? And by that time, they'd realize, holy shit, this is going to happen. Like, this guy, you know, this is not a joke. Like, there's going to be another facility, and it's going to be, you know, across town, whatever. But it is going to happen. And so they agreed to buy the land, and suddenly they, they bought the land, and I made a spread. And that spread was big enough I didn't need a job. 
And I just said, well, holy moly, real estate is a business unto itself. Taking a raw piece of land and giving it a whole different set of rights is worth money. And so then I kept it, kept uh, doing that business. I'd you know, go get land and title it, start working with a home building company that would buy the land for me when it was entitled. And in the middle of all that, I got approached by some guys I knew who uh, had done well in apartments, but they were you know, early on, but they bought a few apartments in California, cap rates had compressed. They made, they made good money. They were, all start, you know, they were all middle-class guys who then suddenly had some money. And they wanted to grow that business, and they were all about 15 years older than me. And they called me, and I said, you know, originally they said, hey, we want you to come work with us. And I said, well, I'm never going to have a job the rest of my life. So if you want to make me a partner, then I'll think about it. And they said, yeah, no, we figured that, blah, blah. And so we had all these conversations, and we ended up, I ended up being like a junior partner. So I had, you know, a small piece. But I had motivation that still kept me feeling psychologically um, in tune which is really what everybody needs to know about themselves, what they need to feel psychologically in tune with whatever they're doing. And so then they taught me a huge amount about the apartment business, which was fantastic and amazing. And they, you know, and I watched them, how they made decisions. And it wasn't always in a way that I felt like was smart or um, certainly not in a way that I thought was quick enough. Uh, they were very, very deliberate. In fact, the guy who kind of had the final say our accountant used to make a joke about him. They would say, uh, yeah, I'm going to use his name. They'd say, well, you know, that guy as a hobby does taxidermy on ants, which I thought was a pretty funny thing for an accountant <laughs> yeah. to say. Yeah, especially right? coming from an accountant. <laughs> from an accountant, right? This is an accountant, and his, the accountant joke was as a hobby, he does taxidermy on ants, which was true. He was so detailed. It drove me insane, right? So, in that process, I, I it was just it was more for me psychological um, encouragement to get to a place where I was making my own decisions. And so, by the, when Lehman Brothers failed, by that time I'd been in the apartment world for over five years, and I'd done a lot of deals, and I'd seen a lot of things, and I'd learned a huge amount. And I was 34. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was coming up on 34. I was 33 still. Um, when Lehman Brothers failed, and after Lehman Brothers failed, then I partnered with two wealthy families in Beverly Hills and started a, a new company called Arenda. And then we went out and we bought 8,000 apartments, um, you know, that that were dealing with various levels of distress from the downturn. And along the way, we also did a lot of other opportunistic real estate, buying you know, warehouses and turning them into retail, buying warehouses, turning them into creative office space. We actually bought a warehouse and turned it into a soundstage in Hollywood for Live Nation, who then leased it for 10 years to use as a place where their bands would go to um, perfect their acts before they went on the road. And so that was the first time I learned about a soundstage. But, you know, specialty real estate, what you start to realize over time is that you know, real estate is simply land that is used for some particular purpose. So, you know, you can be a real estate guy and focus on industrial land or office space or retail or apartments or uh, what I learned, you know, later as we um, explored different things. You could you could be a real estate guy and own a soundstage for a company that sent 
bands on tour. And they had a particular use for a particular piece of real estate. And that's all really specialty real estate is. So um, in 2015, I got to a place where we were having a really hard time buying apartments because just, you know, underwriting became uh, not, didn't have enough spread of safety. You know, I like to buy stuff where I feel like I've got a lot of margin of safety because remember, I'm a philosopher. So the future does not exist. And I know all of the different possible outcomes and not that I know them I can imagine thousands of different possible outcomes and so I know that every pro forma at the end of the day is just a guess that might be an educated guess and it might be a guess that we all are willing to choose to believe but it's still just a guess and so if I'm doing things that require uh, the future to go in a certain way then I want there to be a wide margin of safety so that if the future doesn't go exactly the way that I imagine, that we can still work it out. And so apartments in 2014-15 were getting to a place where the underwriting didn't allow for a lot of workout if things didn't go exactly as people imagined they might. And that's how apartments have continued to trade uh, for the last three, four years. Um, but in 2014-15, I said, well, if I'm not a buyer, then I should probably think about being a seller. And so we started selling off all the apartments, and we went from about 8,000 down to today we have about 500. But along the way, I was looking for other real estate stuff to do, and um, you know, I, I moved to Atlanta in 2014, and in 2014, Pinewood Studios opened in Atlanta. It was built by Dan Cathy, who owns Chick-fil-A, and we started getting huge movies coming to Atlanta because of Pinewood. Uh, all the Marvel movies. I think the first one was Ant-Man. And after that, then it was just like, roll them through, do it again. Um, and so I was watching that and, and, you know, Dan had built Pinewood in a really odd real estate location. Wasn't odd for him. Cause again, you know, you got to go back to the fact that at the core, everyone's decisions are personal psychological decisions, no matter how they try to justify them or reason through them. At the end of the day, um, our psychology, our emotions, whether we are paying attention to them or not, our feelings are actually what are you know, driving our decisions. And so Dan had decided to build Pinewood in the town where he grew up, Fayetteville, which is about an hour outside of Atlanta. And it was fine as a real estate location if it was the only studio. But what it did as a real estate play is open the door for somebody like me to say, well, man, if that works in Fayetteville, what if we built Pinewood in the city? And when I started talking to people in Hollywood, LA, you know, just about like Pinewood in the city, everybody was like, wow, if you build Pinewood in the city, you are going to absolutely destroy it. And so that's what we decided to do. And so then we built Blackhall Studios, which is, you know, a big facility. It's 165 acres. We use about 100. Uh, we have uh, 850,000 square feet under roof of sound stages, warehouse space, office space. And we lease that space to uh, the other big studios in LA, Disney, Sony, Warner Brothers, Paramount, Universal, HBO, the list goes on. I mean, the cool thing is we're in a day and age when Google's making content, right? Because Google owns YouTube and YouTube is 
aspiring to be the next next Netflix. And so they're spending money, you know, building out all their own content. Uh, Facebook's building out all its own content. They're starting to build content for Instagram and, um, and, and for Facebook itself. And it's just a, there's a, there's a huge content war happening amongst the richest people on the planet, all fighting for the eyeballs of the other billions of people. Um, and so, you know, while I didn't grow up in production, I do know a lot about real estate and finance, and I know how to, you know, get things done that other people need. And so just like I could build a hospital, even though I'm not a surgeon, and deliver a hospital that a surgeon loved to use and was willing to rent, the same is true of a movie studio. And so we really have gotten shot out of a cannon. We opened in 2017, and uh, since that time, um, we've done leases with all those names that I mentioned, and, and most of them multiple leases, We've made a lot of, uh, you know, content that people would know. Like, you know, the latest Godzilla was, movie was made at Black Hall. Venom with Tom Hardy was made at Black Hall. Um, Disney made a movie called Jungle Cruise, which probably nobody on this podcast has heard of. But this time next year, Jungle Cruise will be a movie that everybody in America knows about because it'll be one of the biggest movies of 2020. And that's with The Rock. Uh, and then Sony came and made Jumanji uh, at Black Hall. Um, not the a portion of the first one, or when I say the first one, not the Robin Williams one, but the first one with The Rock was made at Black Hall. And then they came back and they just made another one that comes out at the end of the year. Uh, so the next Jumanji was all made at Black Hall. Um, and then after that, then I can't tell you about it because they're all stuff that's going on right now. And I, I you know, I'm not yeah. talking about it. Sure. So but the name, been, the name Black Hall. Oh, go ahead. Keep going. Yeah. Keep going. I, I just say it's been an amazing run. I mean, I've had, you know, it's been, a, it's been a 20 year journey for me to get to the place that I am today. I'm still young, but I'm a very seasoned uh, entrepreneur at this point because I've just been through so much. Um, and so really, I think the best is yet to come. I think it's all this is where it all gets really, really fun and interesting. Yeah, I completely agree. And I mean, sharing to the audience, having the chance to go to the studio and you toured us around in little four wheelers. And it was just such an amazing experience. And just to think like you, the, the vision behind what you have built to stop and think about like you actually conceptualizing this and saying, yeah, we're going to do this here. I think it's just phenomenal. So I, 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 I was, I was totally blown away by the chance to see it. And that's, I love the story because you named black hall after a road in Oxford, right. Or in the town. Of, is I, yeah. That... yeah, I did. Um, yeah. The, I was on, we were trying to come up with a name and I'd hired a, a marketing firm that was supposed to be a specialist in names. And they came up with a hundred terrible names. I think the third time through, sorry, they they come up with like thirty at a time. And the third time through, I said to him, I said, I can't believe that you guys get paid for this. I mean, these names are terrible. Like it's just all you know, they're all combination names because everybody's searching for something that they can get the intellectual property rights to. So you know, you can't have you can't have um, you know. Tree house, you know, tree house studios, you know, probably you can't get the intellectual property rights to, but big tree house, you could probably get the intellectual property rights to. Or big green tree house, you could probably get the intellectual property rights to. 
so it's, they're always searching for these combo names that like just are unique enough that they can get the intellectual property rights. Well, the names were terrible. And so I, but I was on, I was back at Oxford for a, a reunion and I was out on a walk and I came walking up on this road and I see this sign black hall road. And it, it turns out it's the road right next to Keeble because Keeble's flanked by two roads, Parks Road and Black Hall Road. And Black Hall Road is really just a, a little arc of a road that uh, cuts through the center of Oxford, um, just along Keeble down by the Lamb and the Flag pub. And it's just this, you know, it's this cool alleyway, kind of a street. But I thought to myself, I said, Black Hall, that's such a good name, like just solid, easy, sounds like it could, you know, be 100 years old. I said, but the odds of me being able to get the name Black Hall seem slim to none. And so I, I emailed my attorneys and I said, hey, check out this name and let me know what I can do with the intellectual property rights. And they got back to me two days later. They said, you're not going to believe this. This is one of the cleanest names we've ever seen. You can have the rights to it all over the world. I said, how is that possible? I said, I don't know. And I stopped that. And, and I've learned that you know, when you ask the question, why hasn't somebody else done that? Or why is that possible? Or blah, blah, blah. If you don't have a good answer to it, you just, just stop asking. Just accept that it hasn't been done, and there's not a good answer, and you just just be thankful and move on. And so I said, great, take it. And I and, and then I bought the domain, blackhallstudios.com, which was, you know, fantastic. That was available easy. And we were off to the races. I emailed my attorneys. I said, you know, lock it all down. I emailed my staff and, and the, and the, and the um, marketing guys. I said, shut down the name search. The name is Black Hall Studios, and so here we are. It's um, you know, it's been it's been a really good brand, and, and at this point, it's a really known brand in Hollywood. I think people love what we've done. Um, I think they they really enjoy making movies and television at Black Hall. I think they love the the team that we have, which is a fantastic, amazing, seasoned team of uh, mostly ex-production veterans. Um, and if you know, and the people that aren't production veterans are certainly business veterans, and so it's just a pro team, and it's an easy place to do business. Love that. That's phenomenal. So, the 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 last question that I wanna that I wanna ask, and I'm gonna ask you in sort of a two way because I think you've touched on two of my favorite questions to ask are, you know, what is it that gets you out of bed the morning the most? And also, you know, what about a season in life that maybe you didn't want to get out of bed? But I guess the question to you is knowing that like this concept of pursuing freedom obviously is a huge focus for you. What do you, what do you hope to accomplish between now and the day you die, whether that's tomorrow or whether that's, uh, you know, 60 years from now, what, what is it that you, you hope to accomplish? Well, I think every day that goes by, um, and maybe this is true for most people or not, but for me, certainly every day that goes by, it feels like the goals of life become much simpler. Um, certainly for me personally, you know, a certain amount of wealth that then produces a certain amount of freedom. And then inside of that freedom, what I really find delight in is the, is the freedom to adventure and explore, the, the, the freedom to turn my imagination on and then try to bring the things that I imagine into life. That's what I like to do with my freedom. But it's, but it's, there, there's a phrase that I started saying, I, you know, that I kind of dreamed up when I was in, in my 20s. And I said, vision without capital is misery. And, and so I don't want to have, I don't want to be miserable. I want to be able to have vision and I want to be able to capitalize that vision and bring it into life. So for me personally, that's a, that's a really important uh, thing. But then, 
apart from my own psychological journey, knowing the things that would bring me happiness and, and searching passionately for the path that will get me to the place that will bring me happiness, which frankly along the way is full of happiness and joy because you're actually doing what you desire and, and long to do. After that, really, it's just about family. And it's about my, my kids and it's about how they're growing up and how I can help them know themselves and how I can help them identify what it is they long for and how I can help them then pursue what they long for with passion and joy uh, such that they might know happiness and then be able to pass that happiness or that, that uh, equation for happiness onto their children. And if I, you know, I, I've told you, I told you earlier, you know, there's not a day that goes by in my life that I don't contemplate death. And one of the things that you contemplate when you contemplate death is you say, what am I really going to be thinking about? What am I really going to be feeling in my soul when I'm on my deathbed? And the only things I think I'm going to be thinking about are who did I actually love? Who actually loved me? And are the people I loved in a better place because they knew me? Or are they in a worse place? And am I in a better place because of knowing them? or not. And ultimately, I think that's kind of the end game is just simply um, where is their real love? And where is that love having real impact? And how does that love then translate from one human being to the next intergenerationally? And these are hard things. I mean, trust me, it sounds, I'm I'm breaking it down to something very simple, but but achieving that simple thing is incredibly terribly difficult because you're trying to both care for other people while not giving up your own dreams and hopes and journey towards what you believe is your own happiness. And that is a complex balance because in our society, you have, you know, there's a, there's a camp of people that call chasing your own happiness, selfishness. And then there's a camp of people that call chasing your own happiness, American. And trying to know where that balance is, is, I think, very, very difficult. But at the end of the day, I think um, it's all about the people that you're closest to, the people that you impact, and then the people that have the most impact on you. Love it. Love it. Just phenomenal. So uh, I guess I want to, first and foremost, I want to say thanks a ton for doing this. And then secondly, I want to say, is there anything you want to, anything else you want to leave the audience with? Well, you know, let's do another one that's more uh, philosophical. Well, we can go if for the for anybody that's interested, then we can really explore, uh, you know, some of the really deep, <clears throat> impactful ideas that come out of philosophy. If you know, if anybody was interested, I like it. Let's do it. Maybe a maybe a cigar and a little little bourbon will be a much much needed. So. <laughs> <laughs> Then we might not want to record it. It might not be yeah, exactly. uh, consumable. <laughs> well, Ryan, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. This was, this was fantastic. I really appreciate it. Yeah, glad to do it anytime. Have a great day.